Welcome to the Review Be Name podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. We are here at another Happy Hour podcast, and today is a James Bond-themed Happy Hour podcast. So we're going to do a lot of James Bond-themed games, James Bond conversation, and uh, James Bond-themed news roundup, even. So with me today, we have Alex. Welcome to the Bondcast. We have Chris. Hey, guys. It's me, Chris. And we have Rachel. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> so... As it is a happy hour podcast, we're going to start things off with a game before we move into the news roundup. So, Chris, why don't you take it away with the game? Okay, so we're going to start off with a round of Bond-themed Would You Rather. So, most people know how Would You Rather worked, and before we start, I would like to give credit to Scott Ackerman's Comedy Bang Bang, which is a great podcast, very funny, awesome show. I, we highly recommend you go over and listen to it. They also play this game, and they do it very, very well. Uh, that, they do it better than we will ever do it, to be clear. So absolutely. if you like our Would You Rather, you should jump on over there. So, but we're going to do our best with what we have. So we're going to start Would You Rather right now. I'm going to give these guys two scenarios. They have to choose one or the other. After I give the scenario, they can ask me some questions about it to help better inform their choice. And then at the end, they're going to choose. Okay. Uh, let's get things started with... Okay, we're going to go with this one. So here's your scenario. All of the Bond films are going to be digitally remastered. All of them. The copies that you have are being repossessed. They're just going to cease to be, let's say. The only Bond films that will exist after this event takes place are the ones that are being digitally remastered and re-released. So would you rather that these films that are being digitally remastered digitally replace every Bond actor with Polly Shore playing James Bond, or digitally remastered to replace every Bond girl with Roseanne Barr and every Bond villain with David Schwimmer. Wait, is that sorry, Is that second what? part a package deal? Yes, it's a yeah. package deal. So, so repeat the scenario one more time for us. Okay, so all of the Bond films that you currently own that are currently on sale just disappear. And the new ones that are re-released are either going to be digitally remastered to digitally replace Sean Connery, Roger Moore, every Bond actor, every actor who's ever played Bond, with Polly Shore. He's, he's been in front of a green screen, he's re-recorded all of James Bond's parts for every movie, and Polly Shore will be digitally inserted as James Bond to every movie. Or, you still have Roger Moore, you still have Sean Connery, etc., etc., but the Bond girls are now all played by Roseanne Barr, and the Bond villains are all played by David Schwimmer. Does Pauly Shore ad-lib at all? Like James Bond, buddy. Absolutely. Mm. He does. So all of the dialogue in all of the Bond movies is exactly the same, right? It's all exactly the same, except for Pauly Shore adds a little twist here and there. Like, a Pauly Shoreism. James Bond, buddy. So, if I pick the David Schwimmer, Roseanne Barr option, do they read all the dialogue correctly and only Polly Shore fucks up my Bond dialogue? Um, David Schwimmer reads it all correctly, but he's a little more neurotic about it. Well, of course, it's David Schwimmer. Yeah. Exactly. <sighs> and Roseanne Barr laughs inappropriately in the middle of lines. Okay, so, like so they she basically play it as to, but... David Schwimmer and Roseanne Barr. 
Yes. Like, Roseanne wasn't supposed to laugh during that line, but that's the best take they had of her. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It's like awkward pausing only with laughter. Does George Lazenby stay Bond in On Master's Secret Service because he's only in the one, or is he also replaced by Polly Shore? He is also replaced by Polly Shore. So Polly Shore plays Bond throughout. Yes. There's only one Bond. There's only one Bond, and that Bond is Polly Shore. Does Polly Shore get older, or does he say, like, 90s Polly Shore? It's, yes, it's nine. well, it's Polly Shore as he is now. They record them all in just oh, a geez. marathon session over next summer. It's not even Next like, summer? <laughs> he could be dead by then. <laughs> there's no guarantee that Polly Shore can act to the Oscar caliber uh, no, there's a guarantee I expect from Polly Shore. Um... Okay, that's a good question, but now I think I think that tells me mostly what I need to know. All right, anyone? Have I'm any gonna more go questions? with Polly Shore. Wait, 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 wait! Anyone have any more? Questions? Alex, you can't vote before he closes the floor. <laughs> no, no, you can't. You can't use their wording. Damn it! Before he closes the ceiling. <laughs> so do I not count anymore? Jordan, you're going to have to contact the RTBN legal staff after this podcast is done. I am the RTBN legal staff. <laughs> It'll be a short walk then. We're all screwed. <laughs> all right. Anyone have any last questions? Nope. All right. It's time to vote. Starting with Alex. How do you vote? Hmm. As hilarious as I think it'd be if I changed my vote now, I'm still going to go with Polly Shore. All right, so Polly Shore is yeah. now every James he, Bond, the star of every James Bond movie. I think it'll be a lot more fun to watch Polly Shore fuck up and improv everything, especially how is here's I'm reneging. How many uh, days are they filming all these movies over? Is it like one week that they have Polly Shore? Week week and a half, pretty much a week and a half. Ten days, let's say. Ten days, ten business days, or ten days. Ten business days. He gets the weekend, but there'll be a lot of coke involved in that weekend. Yep, Polly Shore, of course. Okay. Rachel, what say you? Well, I'm, I'm going to have to go with Roseanne Barr and David Schwimmer because for purely selfish reasons, I don't, I don't want to give up Daniel Craig in a bathing suit. You don't want Polly Shore in a bathing suit? God, no. Oh, you're missing out. <laughs> you have something to tell us, Alex? Hey, like, this is not, not off the podcast. We're going to be named Therapy Podcast, so <laughs> anything that Alex wants to tell us about his sexuality can wait until that podcast comes. Well, this is a safe space, Jordan. He can, he can, yeah, he can Alex, we will accept you regardless of who you want to sleep with. Except if it's Polly Shore, because that's fucking weird. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You don't know what this means to me. <laughs> Okay, so, so Jordan, <laughs> what say you? Okay. I'm going to pick, with explanation, Polly Shore. Yeah, that a boy. Because I kind of think it would be interesting to see what James Bond would look like if the entire series had a single James Bond. And if the continuity followed through. So if we re-edit everything to have Polly Shore as Bond, and we tweak a few things to make it so that Polly Shore is Bond throughout... And that everything that's happened to Bond continues to happen to Bond. 
I find that interesting. And also, I think that the best Bond villains could not be played properly by Schwimmer. So I find the Roseanne Barr... <laughs> but Bond David... could be played by, played by Pauly Shore. I'm more willing to accept Bond as Pauly Shore than to lose my Bond villains and Bond girls. I think Roseanne Barr would actually be fairly amusing as pretty much every Bond girl. I think she'd do a good job, and I think it'd be funny. Um, so long as it was Roseanne Barr reading the Bond girl lines, as opposed to Roseanne Barr spouting off on political opinions. But Schwimmer, I think, would be incapable of playing almost every Bond villain in the series. You don't think you could pull off Jaws? No, but Jaws is a henchman, which we will <laughs> we'll get to later. Okay. I don't think you could pull off any lead Bond villain without any problems. So I'd rather have Polly Shore than David Schwimmer as Bond villains. So that is my choice. Okay. The podcast votes for Polly Shore. Congratulations. You've just created a world where there is no more suave, debonair James Bond. It's just Polly Shore. I hope you're proud of yourselves. I think none of us were leaving this with our pride. No. So... No. Check your pride at the door. Uh, now that we have ruined the James Bond franchise, really in either case... Well, you're, you're both... You're, you're all very wrong. You're all very, very wrong. Let me tell you why. You're assuming that all of these movies would continue to get made with Pauly Shore. Is that a contingency plan within the, within the scenario? Rachel, first of all, you should have asked that question before we close yeah, the floor. Yeah, I really should have asked that question before the floor. <laughs> Second of all, yes, my understanding of the scenario is that all of the Bond movies have already been made. We're just replacing Bond with Polly Shore in all of them. They would also <sighs> crank out a few more with these three. Ugh. In the, with however you chose. I was going to say, way. wait, all three regardless? Because <laughs> that's not fair. The next, the next one would feature all three. And then after that, it would just be whichever you choose would be, like, until that person dies. That's what you get. I really wish I had asked that question. <laughs> Which I feel... There I really feel are the, no winners in this scenario. There are no winners whenever we play Would You Rather on this show. So why don't we go ahead and move on to the news roundup? We're going to do a, a, a rather short news roundup this time because we want to fit in a few more games and uh, a discussion for those of you who have seen the film of Skyfall at the end. And if you haven't, we'll let you know when we're going to start spoiling everything horribly. So, before we do that, let's talk about a a few news stories this week. Uh, One of them is related to the theme of the podcast, one of them is not. So why don't we start with the one that is not related to the theme of the podcast and talk about the fact that earlier this week there was announced that a Boy Meets World sequel is in the works. That sequel will theoretically involve... Uh, ben Savage and Danielle Fischel reprising their roles as Corey and Topanga, raising a daughter who is learning to meet the world, if you'll accept that explanation. It's going to focus on a teenage girl who is uh, learning lots of life lessons. So we have Corey and Topanga raising a girl who is learning to quote-unquote meet the world. What do we think about this? Uh, Rachel? You know... I'm concerned. I, I have I have concerns. Um, I'm excited about it because, like, deep in my '90s baby heart, I, I really want to believe that it's going to be awesome and, you know, be as meaningful to this new generation as you know, Boy Meets World was to us. Because I, I said it, you know, I said it yesterday during the the commercials that roll before a movie when I was waiting to see Skyfall last night. Um, 
And there was like some stupid commercial for like a Disney show. Um, and I just looked at, I looked at the person I was sitting next to and went, I feel bad for today's kids. Their programming is awful. So deep down, the little part of me that is an optimist hopes that this is as great as Boy Meets World or close. <coughs> and the fact that some of the originals are signed on makes me believe that maybe that's possible. We'll see. But I also know that it's very unlikely that a second iteration of this series is going to be able to capture the special place that's, that Boy Meets World did for so many people. Um, so I'm concerned. But hopefully, hopefully it's fantastic. Let's get one thing straight right now. The children's programming of right now is much better than it's been in previous decade or so. There are, like, Disney programming is a bit shallow. I'll give you that. They have two shows, Phineas and Ferb and Gravity Falls. But then you have, like, Cartoon Network showing stuff like Adventure Time and Regular Show and reruns of older shows that we like. I mean... Compared but, to, you know, like, everyone has their own uh, rose-colored glasses on with their childhood, but, I mean, it, it was it's much better now than it was in, say, 2003. I mean, this is a completely different conversation that I think we should definitely, like, schedule to have at some point, but, like, I'd say that the well, large... Well, hey, it's a happy hour podcast. Go to town. The large majority of children's, like, mainstream programming right now is that shitty Disney... Nickelodeon random like stuff, and honestly, I don't know if I count rerunning well, let, let's, previous let me just series. Here for a second because I, think I mean, in Rachel, that case, then Looney Tunes is... wasn't part of your childhood. Wait, whoa, 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 guys, Chris, go ahead. I, no. Rachel, I think what you're referring to is more along the lines of the tween dramedies. So I'm not really sure what's current being with. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna probably date myself with this reference, but stuff in the veins of uh, iCarly or. Um, what, what was the one with um, Sonny with a Chance? Was that something? Yeah, so Is I'm that... talking about that stuff, but I'm also talking about, like, younger children's programming, like, you know, awful things like Dora the Explorer and, like, all of that awful, let's dumb down our children kind of programming. Dora the Explorer teaches Spanish. <laughs> I hate Dora the Explorer. Has she ever found anything? I mean... She's explored a lot of things, Chris. And how dare you? It's on my TiVo. (laughs) All of it. The entire run of Dora the Explorer. Okay, so... Um, I mean, like, shows like Sesame Street and everything that we grew up with are still there. I don't think, like, kids are exclusively watching... Well, Sesame Street is different. Sesame Street is different. It's a special entity that lives on its own. I don't... in, in In my previous statements, I'm not counting Sesame Street among those. Well, you can't just discount shows. I think we can all hope... I can do whatever the fuck I want, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) I think we can all hope... Well, children's programming is terrible right now if you Um, don't count these shows that are on right now. Now that Barack Obama has been re-elected president. I guess we can all do whatever the fuck we want, as Rachel said, because, as I have clarified, this is a happy hour podcast, so anything goes really, but... Now that we've we've heard a little bit of Rachel's uh, feelings on Boy Meets World coming back, and Alex's feelings on television programming in general for children, why don't we go to Chris, and Alex, I promise we'll come back to you That's on right. how you feel about the sequel. So Chris, how do you feel about Girl Meets World, the ideal Boy Meets World sequel? Alright, it's time to out one of my deepest, darkest secrets, so... Oh god, don't do it, Chris. Happy our podcast. Um, this could actually have fallen nicely under a game of pop culture, Never Have I Ever, but don't, I actually have never seen 
any of Boy Meets World. (gasps) Any of it? Any of it. Like, you didn't even just, like, not watch it regularly? You have never seen it? I have never seen a single episode. (gasps) How did you learn how to do anything in life without Boy Meets World? It's beyond me. I I just kind of, like, follow people through doors is the best way I can describe it. Like, how do I use a microwave? Oh! Yeah, I just, like, sneak my food into, like, microwaves that other people are using. It's, <laughs> it's a trying life. It's a terrible existence. Oh, my God. Um, it, but, but again, like, let me, let me clarify just to say that not for any particular reason. It was just one of those weird gaps that some people have. It's just, like, for some reason, I just never watched Boy Meets World. Um, I feel like I missed out on something. If the opportunity presented itself, I think I would like to try and watch it at some point to catch up with what you all experienced as normal people growing up but <laughs> i i just don't have that same frame of reference so i i i'm your excitement makes me excited but i i don't really have that same shared love of this show that you guys do well that's okay i mean you're basically mork from mork and mindy at this point but <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. You don't know what uh, Boy Meets World is, and your opinion is therefore pretty much irrelevant. But whatever. Not. Um, I want. I want to state it for the record again that your statement, your opinion, is not invalid just on this particular thing, but basically on every single thing. On everything. Should I just on, get off on the podcast? On That's, every single thing. Yeah. Rachel can go ahead and hold that. I didn't say that, but uh, <laughs> I mean, she's not wrong necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> Um, why don't we turn things over to Alex for a moment. Alex, how do you feel about the idea of Boy Meets World coming back with Corey and Topanga as the parents of a girl who is, uh... Why do you keep saying to... girl with such disdain? No, no, I'm saying girl... Because it's not a boy. I'm saying girl not in terms of disdain. I'm saying girl as in no one has addressed the fact that theoretically the new Boy Meets World show, which will, I assume, be called Girl Meets World or something. It, apparently that's confirmed. I'm looking at this news right now. Okay. Well, if it's called Girl Meets World, then it's about a girl who is addressing puberty. And I personally, rather than disdain, as Rachel calls it, I think it's actually an important step in the series to turn things over and say, like, okay, we've seen what it's like for a boy to, quote-unquote, meet world in terms of to go through puberty and to figure things out. Why don't we turn things over to a girl and see, like... It's a completely different experience, I think, to see a girl go through puberty and figure out what the fuck all of this means and how to live through life. Um, well, at least there are, there are some very different things. So how do you feel about that, well, well, Alex? Just really quickly, like, I, I definitely get the point you're saying right there, but I agree with Rachel. The emphasis you're implying in this is it's just it's a strange emphasis, the way you're saying the word girl. Well, I think <laughs> that... Just the, the Thank you, Chris. That... <laughs> I take back the invalidation of your opinion. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't mean to emphasize. Chris is probably girl. just saying this because you never watched Boy Meets World. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't mean to emphasize girl in any way. I think I actually think Boy Meets World did some episodes that were very good about saying like this is how girls view the world. But well, that's I think the thing. Actually... That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. If well, I can okay, interject, let's go, go to you, Alex, and then I'll talk I, for a while. So I just think that like calling this like Boy Meets World, yes. Uh, it's called Boy Meets World. It was centered around, uh, you know, Corey. But, like, it was about this group of friends. It wasn't, like, exclusive to, like... Like, he didn't write in his journal every day and have a monologue at the end of each show, you know? It was more about, like, the entire, like, family dynamic and the friend dynamic and even neighbors, you know, all that stuff. But 
Uh, getting more back to girl meets world. I mean, I I don't think it's necessary. I I mean, granted, I haven't watched Boy Meets World in a while, but I think that you could still glean the lessons that you want out of Boy Meets World. And I mean, reading this news, the girl named Riley has a quote dark, edgy, acerbic best friend. Like. it's like a checkbox that you have to have a dark, edgy best friend. Like, they're not trying to really do anything there. It's just... And I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's not going to be as good. I mean, if you go back and read about Boy Meets World, it didn't have this huge following. It wasn't getting millions and millions of views. It was, like, kind of a cult show, even of its time. Well... I mean, if you look at ratings, sure, it was a cult show, but also, like, I, I think it was sort of a, a cultural touchstone of people who were our age, of people who were growing up with, you know, in the 90s and dealing with shows. I mean... Do you think Girl Meets World can be that for kids this, of this age? Sure. I don't see, I don't see why not. Do you, do you think it can't be? I mean, it depends on who's running the show. I mean, Boy Meets World was very much the show of that uh, producer. I forget his name, but... I have internet, uh, so I can Michael find that Jacobs out. Michael Jacobs was the original showrunner, anyway. Is that... Like, do they have him back? Is, is this his brainchild, or is it Disney's? I assume he is like, fuck all, I'll take the money. <laughs> well, I guess that, 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 you know, that's an important point, I guess. It's, is it going to be somebody who's going to attempt to leverage the popularity of the show now and turn it into this kind of commercial behemoth that I'm sure it's bound to be? Or is it going to be somebody who's going to maintain true to the integrity of the original series um so i'd be interested to like learn more as this becomes an actual real thing um and see who's connected to the show like who they start casting or how they start casting and and kind of the marketing machine that will unfurl around it and see whether or not they're taking the kind of spirit of the show seriously or if it's just a, another Oh shit, we have no creative new ideas. Let's try to rehash an old one. Breaking news. This is under the creative uh, eye of Michael Jacobs. Oh, well, I have oh. a little more faith now. My my thing is this, He's running out of and, money. And everyone who apparently across the podcast <laughs> seems to think that my saying girl meets world means that I have disdain for the show. I will No, just women in say, general. I think the idea of doing boy meets world uh from a girl perspective from like what is it like to be a teenager uh you know i guess if we're following the same arc a preteen to adult as a girl like boy meets world did it like i said decent job of saying this is what it's like to grow up as a woman uh this is what it's like to to be a young girl and grow into an older girl but it was focused on Corey. and if we can do the exact same show but say hey this is what it's like to be an 11-year-old girl and a 12-year-old girl and, you know, all the way through college, as Boy Meets World did, for women. I think that's fantastic. I think my so-called life did a decent job of saying, like, this is what high school is like for a girl. But that was a long time ago, and it only lasted a season. Rachel, did you watch My So-Called Life, being the only girl on this podcast? I, I did, and, and I was going to wait for Jordan to finish his stupid sentence before chiming in on this. Um, <laughs> you gotta take what you can get when you can get it. I I just... I mean, I I grew up as a girl. I went through all of this as a girl. Um, wait, what? Good to know. 
I don't think that the experiences are necessarily all that different, to be perfectly honest. I think that part of what, like, I, I am a girl who loved Boy Meets World. I watched yeah. So Called Life, but to be perfectly honest, it was more my, my older sister watched So Called Life, and I watched it with her. But my I don't Life feel... Was I, an older show, I, to be fair. I don't feel disconnected from the adolescent experience as shown in Boy Meets World because I was not a boy. So I, I, I hope I, that it's the... I, and I think that shows that really display this, this period well are the ones that are semi-universal in, you know, translating to whatever gender you are slash ascribe to. And I think that um, if, if this new series can do something similar to that, then... I think that's what will make it successful, not necessarily being like, oh, well, let's add some pink and, like, have her have to talk about having her period now. Okay, well, I don't think that uh, Girl Meets World is going to be like, I have a period and so my life is so much different. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. I think I think Boy Meets World, as I, I, I feel like I've said a few times, is actually does a pretty good job of saying this is what it's like to be an adolescent. And they, they have episodes that deal with what it's like to be uh, a female adolescent and how that is slightly different. Ultimately, I think we're all going through the same things when we're adolescents, which means we're horrible, obnoxious, and dealing with weird body things. That's fine. But if they're going to do a sequel, I'm happy to see it be Girl Meets World and to see whatever different perspective they decide to do. If they do it as well as they did Boy Meets World, it's not going to matter whether you're a girl or a boy. You're going to see adolescents in the same way. And if they manage to adapt it to say, this is what it's like to be an adolescent in the, I assume the show will start in the next few years. So in the, you know, this decade, if it's what it's like to be a teenager in the 2010s decade, then fantastic. I think it'll be a good show. Ultimately, I feel like we're probably all going to check it out anyway. But I think it'll be a good show and I think it'll have some things to say. I can't wait for the don't sext episode. Yeah, that's going to be great. Um, <laughs> you know what I think is funny? I think that, um, you know, we started this conversation in terms of, like, children's programming and how today's kids will approach this show. What I think is going to be interesting is how we, people of our age who grew up with Boy Meets World, how Except we accept the show and how we read the show. And if it's something... Because I don't think... Oh God. Um... Most of us are not at the point where we are raising children um, quite yet. Does anyone on this podcast have children to be raising? <laughs> I, didn't, I meant most of us is in our generation, dear, and not people no, on No, I, I assume. I was just making a joke. <laughs> I'd like to think that there are some children listening to this podcast being <laughs> raised. If you were a child way. listening to this podcast, turn it off now, because <laughs> things are going to get dark at some point, and I apologize. Um, so I think whether or not it's able to translate back to us, um, I think it's going to be something interesting. Fair enough. Who do you think is going to be the audience for this mainly? Do you think it will be the youth of today, or do you think that it's going to have more of an appeal to those like you guys who have such fond nostalgia for this show? I think, I think personally they're going to go for the youth of today, uh, but obviously there's going to be some appeal for those of us who watched Boy Meets World originally. And I think that's kind of the point, right? Like, a lot of and I think that children's entertainment in... today is about the idea of 
let's give something for the kids and something for the adults. And if they can do both, this will be a good show. And there's going to be the nostalgia factor for us. And there's going to be, hopefully, some development for the kids. Um, Rach, what were you going to say? And I was going to say, I think that it's clear that they are not counting us out as an audience in the fact that they said, point blank, when this was first announced, that some of the originals were attached to the cast. That Ben Savage was going to be on it. And Daniel Fischel, I believe. Or at least they were trying to get them. They haven't officially announced they're attached yet. Apparently he's the new Feeny. That would be ridiculous. I don't know how I'd feel about that. Nobody. Well, we know we Technically, know the actor who plays Feeny is not dead, so I think it would be... He's not, but he's not going to live through another... Is know. he? No, he's not. Uh, he, he just did an arc, on, he just did an arc but, on Grey's Anatomy, actually. Yeah, uh, he is 85, I want to say, he's, is his age. He's, he's Oof. William Daniels is not young, and he's probably not coming back for uh, another round of adolescence. But, mm-hmm. ultimately... Boy Meets World was great. If Girl Meets World can capture adolescence in the way that I at least feel Boy Meets World did, I will be happy about it, and I will watch it. And if I have children during its run, I will have them watch it. Uh, Any last thoughts before we move on to more Bond-related things, as that is the theme of the podcast? I have one question for you guys. Do you think calling it Girl Meets World will instinctively just turn off, like, 8-year-old to 12-year-old boys? Like, not like, if did have I intelligent parents have a good uh, boy demographic, or it won't turn off anybody who would have been smart enough to continue watching the show. These are eight-year-old boys I'm talking about. They're not very smart. Well, but to a certain extent, eight-year-old boys are going to go, "What's on TV?" and their parents will go, "This," and they'll watch it. Right? Like that's the hope. I watched. I watched uh, the original TGIF, and I watched shows centered around boys and or girls, regardless, because it was on on the time on Friday night that I wanted to watch television. So if they if they start to build a block around it like uh, ABC originally did around yeah. Boy Meets World, I feel like boys aren't going to care what it's called. They're just going to care if it's on when they want to watch TV. That's true. I did watch a lot of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. So. I love yeah. Sabrina. Oh, great show. Same here. That one I watched. You watch Sabrina, but not Boy Meets World, Chris? I can't explain it to you. So so Chris basically was like, Boy Meets World, that sounds shitty, and waited a half hour and then watched I, Sabrina. I didn't. I just had no opinion about it. There, I cannot explain it. Um, any last thoughts about the idea of a Boy Meets World? I can't believe Chris went through his whole childhood without Feeny. It explains so much oh about God. how poorly balanced he is these days. <laughs> and why Chris is actually a serial killer that we occasionally allow in the podcast. Jordan, we need to have a talk later. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan, I thought we Ultima- weren't going to talk about that. Ultimately, I think that we're all I'm fairly excited about Boy Meets Worlds having a sequel. I think it was a good show for all of us during our adolescence, and I think we're probably all going to see if it can be a good show for the next generation of adolescents. And hopefully it will be. Yeah. Um, now let's move on to more <clears throat> theme-related things. John Logan, the writer of Gladiator, The Aviator, and one of the rewriters, one of the people who did a rewrite on Skyfall, has signed on to write the next two Bond movies, which will apparently play out as one story. So John Logan is taking Daniel Craig, as far as we know, home in terms of Daniel Craig will probably do two more movies. He might not do any more beyond that. Um, so we have one writer taking us through another combined Bond story. Alex, what do you think about the idea of this? 
I mean, it sounds good. I love the um, the Bond stories, like getting more continuity. I like that's one thing I'm most interested in is if there's an actual like, can you actually like even if it's kind of vague and fuzzy, can you map out which Bond story takes place like in the Bond timeline? You know, not counting like technology and stuff, but just like. You know, there's Casino Royale, then Quantum, then go back to Dr. No or something like that. I'm really curious if you can do that, and I feel like this is a good step towards being able to do that. Rachel? You know, I, um, I'm i a latecomer to Bond, so the Bond that I first learned really was the Daniel Craig Bond, and then I've sort of gone back and started um, familiarizing myself with the earlier Bonds, and I'm still very much in the process of doing that. So I, having, you know, we'll talk about this more later, but having really enjoyed Skyfall, am excited for the story to close out with more of a sense of continuity and um, to close out with somebody who approached this film, especially because I feel like Skyfall um, did a lot of quintessentially Bond things very well. Um, So hopefully that kind of commitment to the franchise remains in the next two and finishes out this arc very well. Chris? Uh, I don't think I have anything more to add to what they just said. I look forward to a little bit more continuity between the Bond films. I think that's something I really enjoy from the reboot on is that we've gotten a little bit more of an identifiable story arc than... I mean, I think there has been that at times in the past of the Bond franchise. Sure, but, during the Connery films, yeah, for example. But I, and I, I've enjoyed a return to that aspect of it, and I, I like Skyfall a lot, so I think continuing on this path makes me very happy, and I look forward to the next one. Bond 24 and 25, from the writer of The Time Machine and Star Trek Nemesis. <laughs> um... Yeah, personally, I I love the continuity aspect, and I think that that goes well uh, with the idea of Bond as a continuing storyline, and with the idea of Daniel Craig's era of Bond as sort of one story, where you have... I mean, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace were probably... Quantum of Solace is probably the, the strongest quote-unquote, sequel of any Bond movie. It continues mm-hmm, the story mm-hmm, more than mm-hmm, any other Bond movie mm-hmm, has. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm not... No, Alex, to be clear, I'm not saying Corner of Souls was good. No, I'm, I'm just saying... Uh, the. See, I'm a Bond novice, so I'm not too familiar, but the, the second Bond movie has to do with someone being angry that Dr. No is dead. Yeah, no, From Russia with Love is a very strong sequel to Dr. No. But... Quantum of Solace starts, like, 30 seconds after Casino Royale ends, and it deals with all of Bond's emotions from Casino Royale, and it moves on. It's sort of a continuation of the story in a way that, even from Russia with Love, sort of continues from Dr. No, and it has the Spectre plot line, but ultimately, it's a different movie than Dr. No ever was. And to be clear, I think From Russia with Love is one of, if not the greatest Bond movies you know, it's 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 upper crust. But I think we've been going on an arc with Daniel Craig's version of Bond that we haven't really seen since the Connery era. So if the last two are going to connect to each other, if the last two are going to be a strong story, I think that that could be something very good for Bond. 
Uh, yeah, so ultimately I'm excited about that. I think we've all sort of set our piece on that. Are we ready to move on to another game? I like games. All right, well, as we've clarified, this is a James Bond-themed podcast. So this game is going to be a Bond villain battle royale. So I will give some background for each villain we're we're seeing go back-to-back with each other. But ultimately, this is going to be about which Bond villain would do a better job of fighting the other villain. So take Bond out of the equation for the moment, and let's try to figure out which Bond villain would be more capable against the other. So our first round, Max Zorin, a.k.a. Christopher Walken, from A View to a Kill, versus Alec Trevelyan from Goldeneye. That's Sean Bean from Goldeneye. To give you a little background before I throw you out and say who is better, Max Zorin's plot was to flood the Silicon Valley and take over the microchip business in the early 80s. He was going to take over basically computers in the early 80s. Alec Trevelyan wanted to take his revenge on MI6. So, who of the two do you think is more capable? And you can feel free to say that you have not seen the movie and you still have an opinion. So why don't we start with uh, Chris? Um... No, I'm not sure that I actually saw V to a Kill. Um, I feel like I would remember uh, Christopher Walken, right? I'll, 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 clarify, I'll clarify that A View to a Kill is a pretty bad Bond movie, but that Walken is actually a pretty good Bond villain in it. So if you, ha- if, if you don't remember A View to a Kill, that's fine. It's fairly forgettable. But his plan is to basically take over... Silicon Valley at a time when that would be actually fairly reasonable and nefarious. Okay. And he was. Uh, I'm just. I'm just doing a little cursory research here. He was. He was ex KGB, right? Yes. So he, it's, he so had it's, gone rogue from the KGB. Okay. So it's ex KGB versus ex MI6. Yes. Hmm. Um. I'm gonna have to go with uh, Alex Trevelyan. I think he. I think he takes it. Alec Trevelyan yeah. is Chris's no. vote. Okay, we're gonna go ahead and move on to Rachel. Rachel, Max Zorin versus Alec Trevelyan. Hmm. Um. You know, I love Walken, but I'm gonna have to go with Alec Trevelyan, if only because in my research of these various villains, I am seeing that the role of Max Zorin was originally offered to David Bowie, who turned it down. And as much as I love David Bowie, I believe that nobody could probably play anything as good as Bowie could. So I'm going to have to go with Alec Trevelyan. Right. That being said, I have seen neither of these movies. <laughs> you haven't seen Goldeneye either? Um, I told you that it was a new thing for me, Jordan Blacks. No, I, I know, but Goldeneye? I, I know. <laughs> Regardless. I... All right, so we have two, two votes for Trevelyan. Alex? Started off by saying I haven't seen either of those movies either. Uh, I have about half dozen Bond films under my belt right now, so I'm a novice, like I said before. And I have one question: Is this like each villain is trying to accomplish their goal while combating the other villain, or are they just like straight up like UFC brawl? 
Yeah, that's a good question. The idea is that each villain is fighting the other villain. And when that villain goes by the wayside, I'm sure they'll try to accomplish their goal. But James Bond, out of the equation, these villains want to take out the other villain first. Are, that is the idea. Are they, like, in an arena fighting this out? Or are they approaching no, they have, each other they with they other accumulated resources? Either so villain it's... has everything that that villain would have at their disposal. Okay. So Zoran has his flying blimp. He has his technological capabilities. He's ready to go. Trevelyan has his satellite. He has his uh, station to control it. Both of them are ready to go. He had the hacker guy, too. What was his name? Uh, I don't remember his name, but yes, he has the hacker guy. He has not been exploded by the pen yet. Okay. So basically, it's like they have all of their like stuff going on. They have their plan set for like taking all the micro trips or whatever. But they're like, okay, we got to get rid of this guy first before we can do this. Yeah. Okay. So it's like... One villain is standing in the way as opposed to James Bond standing in the way. I'm going to go with Goldeneye villain because uh, yep, because he was a bastard in the video game. Alright, I'll buy it. Uh, we have three votes for Alex Trevelyan, so he moves on to the next round. Yeah, he was, I mean, just looking hey, at... Hey, so my vote didn't even count there. Like, this is... Trevelyan has more train. I mean, like, uh, what, what was the first guy? Zorin? Yeah, XKG, I, I just think Trevelyan has more experience on him at this point. You know, he's been around, had a few more years to study tactics. I think Trevelyan takes it. Trevelyan does take it by a landslide. Right. So we're going to get rid of Max Zorin. We're going to move on to the next round. We have uh, Dr. Kananga from Live and Let Die versus Rosa Kleb from From Russia with Love. To give you a little background, Dr. Kananga is a drug-running crime lord who has uh, dominance over both Harlem and Jamaica and who is running all of his drugs from Jamaica into the United States with little trouble. Rosa Kleb is the number two... Technically, she's not number two, but she's the, num the right-hand man to uh, the top of Spectre. She is in charge of a mission to take down Bond, uh, and she is controlling both the Bond girl in her movie, and most of the Spectre operations throughout the film. So we have Rosa Klebb versus Dr. Kananga. Why don't we start with you, Rachel? Uh, uh, you can ask questions, by the way, if you're not familiar with either of these people. I have a, a decent, at least, Bond knowledge, and I'd be happy to help you out. Yeah. Actually, uh, Jordan, I'm going to step out for one second, but I will be back very shortly. Go right ahead. I'll put you third in the line. Rachel, go ahead. Thank you very much. Hmm. Um. Why don't you tell me more about this doctor, Jordan? Dr. Kananga is really not a doctor so much as a man who is capable of exporting his drugs throughout the United States from Jamaica. So, really, his biggest accomplishment is he has created a pure form of I believe it's cocaine is the center of Live and Die. He's created the purest form possible. So he's Walter White. And, well, no, Walter White is focused on math. But basically, the Walter, the White. Walter White of cocaine, excuse me. Sure. Yeah, he's Walter White for your purposes. And basically, he's, he has a convincing enough alter ego to go from Jamaica to Harlem and throughout the United States. So he has, he has a double identity. He is a, a drug runner who manages to get all his drugs in the United States and to sell them 
quite well. Okay, I'm going to have to go with Rosa Klebs. Um, number one, because I think Dr. Kananga, because he focuses on the drug issue, um, is sort of easy to take down and kind of siloed. Whereas when you're talking about people just generally involved in international espionage and spy work, I think that they are greater threats. Um, so I think that Rosa Klebs probably has a bit more... A bit more of a wide-ranging set of skills that make her the more formidable villain. All right. I think that's a fair decision. Alex? I'm going to go with Rosa. Also going to go with Rosa. Any yep. reasoning? My gut tells me. Your, your gut tells you. <laughs> yep. have you. Have you seen From Rush With Love? Nope. That's not one of the... Like, my, my uh, Bond knowledge goes from Dr. No to a handful of the Pierce Brosnan's... Uh, Post Goldeneye and the Daniel Craig's. Okay, well, I will tell tell both Alex and Rachel. Well, I, I'm back, Jordan. I, no, I know, I'm, <laughs> and we're about to go to you, Chris. Uh, but I will tell both Alex and Rachel that For Russia with Love is one of the best Bond movies, if not the best. So you should both check it out because it's amazing. Um, and at that point, we're going to turn to Chris and say, Doctor Kananga from Live and Let Die versus Rosa Kleb from From Russia with Love. Um, I definitely don't remember Live and Let Die as much as I thought I did. This is I have to go back and watch rewatch more Bond films is what I'm gathering from all this. Okay, well but I, I okay, so I'd be happy to answer any questions if you have them. So describe Dr. Kananga to me again. Kananga is what a was, drug runner. So he has okay, he's, he's he's got dual egos. He plays both the the production end in Jamaica and the distribution end in Harlem. Kananga is able to smuggle his drugs from Jamaica to the United States and distribute them throughout. Rosa Klebb, on the other hand, is one of the top officials in Spectre, and she is planning one of the greatest uh, attempts to take down Bond of them all. Okay. Um, I am going to go with Kananga on this one. Because uh, I I remember being very impressed with Cleb up to a point uh, where she her plan just kind of fell apart at the end, where she had this whole great scheme to disgrace both uh, MI6 and the KGB, and also their two top agents, and uh, also put Spectre on a higher footing. But then at the end of her plan, when she has, like, the entire resources of Spectre available to her, her plan is basically just to sneak into Bond's hotel room and use the shiv boot to stab him. Which, not exactly top strategic thinking here. It, it, it right. was not the best plan. So I think, I, think she's, I think she's very formidable, but I think when it comes down to it, she falls apart at the 10-yard line. I think, I think that's completely reasonable. Unfortunately, because both Alex and Rachel went with uh, Rosa Kleb, she moves on to the next round. So we're going to go ahead and get rid of Dr. Kananga and move to the next bracket, which is Carl Stromberg versus Raul Silva. Carl Stromberg from The Spy Who Loved Me, his plan is to... uh, He's created an underwater base, and he plans to create a rivalry that will result in him being the ruler of the world, basically. He's got a, a world domination plan. Raul Silva's plan is to cripple MI6 to the point that 
she will be able to take care of M and get rid of her. So, to be clear, Carl Stromberg from The Spy Who Loved Me, underwater base, Jaws as an ally, planning to, to take care of both MI6 and the KGB, and to take control. Raul Silva, very focused, but also one of the great hackers, apparently, of our generation, and ready to take out M at any cost. So why don't we start with uh, Chris? Um, okay, what... Uh, I'm sorry, say the name of the first choice for me again. Carl Stromberg from The Spy Who Loved Me. All right, Carl Stromberg. Okay, so underwater base, right? Yes, he's got an underwater base. He's got Jaws as his major henchman. Okay, and what, what was his actual plan? Like, how was he going to dominate the world? Okay, so... Basically, his idea is that from the underwater base, he's going to be able to take nuclear control of the world. Okay. Um, you know what? He, never mind. He just loses, all right? He, he <laughs> loses plain and simple. Anyone who has an underwater base is just a scrub. You, you're, you're not thinking things through. It's a terrible idea under any circumstances because as soon as somebody gets in there, all they have to do is shoot through one of the windows and it's just, it, it's, you're done. It's over. Also, yes, Jaws is a very formidable ally to have on your side, but it doesn't really show, like, management skills I'm entirely impressed with because, like, I, I, the guy has a metal jaw. He's extremely unhinged. It's not the kind of, it, it, it's just showmanship. It just this isn't like a guy. I'm this. Um, uh, was was his name again? I can't remember his name for the life of me. Whose name? Jaws. No. Um, Carl Stromberg. 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 I'm not impressed with Stromberg. It's just like he's it, just way too over the top theatrical weirdness and things that seem to be like he money that could have been spent better on just having more guns for whoever eventually comes to challenge him rather than constructing a base on the bottom of the ocean and putting metal teeth inside of the mouth of his weirdest henchman. So yeah, well, he's stupid. Weirdest, so but also, weirdest. to be clear, Jaws is a giant and very strong, but that's Jaws is not a question here, so fair enough. Yeah. You are picking uh, Raul Silva, I take it? Yes, he make well, yes, because Stromberg makes questionable choices. Very <coughs> questionable choices. All right, Rachel. I'm. We have. I'm also oh. going to go with Raul Silva on this one, and this is why. Um, you can have a political agenda. You can have a, you know, a financial agenda or whatever. But I think that nothing really touches on just the incredible psychological fuck upness of Raul Silva, um, in a way that like. It's part of what makes, for me personally, what makes the Joker one of the most terrifying Batman villains, and that there is this level of like psychological trauma at, that drives their ultimate villainy to the point where there is no there is no appeasement, um, and in a sense, Raúl Silva, like I mean, we'll talk about Skyfall more in a little bit, but like just such an incredibly formidable opponent for Bond that like because he has that element of thinking like Bond I think it's part of what makes him one of the better villains um 
And also, he just fucking terrifies me. Like, there's clearly just so much wrong with him on the inside. Um, and as somebody who also has psychological damage to, like, none of the level of <laughs> Raul Silva, I really respect his ability to kind of, like, get shit. He, he just terrifies me. Like, I'm not going to lie. He just terrifies the shit out of me. So I'm going to go with him. And that is all. Can, can, all I, right. can I chime back in here for a second? I just had another thought. Um, so Stromberg has the money to build and operate a base on the bottom of the ocean. That's and true. And he is still trying to take over the world. This guy is an idiot. What more <laughs> could you want if you have that kind of disposable capital on you? Running the world at this point just sounds exhausting as compared to the life you can lead with the billions and billions and billions of dollars it would take to make a base on the bottom of the ocean. I hate this guy. I hate him. <laughs> That's okay. That's fair enough, Alex. What are, what are your feelings on Stromberg versus Silva? Well, not that it matters how this, considering how our voting system works, but he does sweep it. Raul Silva is the superior Bond villain because he's awesome. Okay. Well, I can't disagree with Silva being awesome. Uh, so why don't we go ahead and move on to the next round? The next round has Arik Goldfinger versus Francisco Scaramanga. For some background before we start, Arik Goldfinger is a man who has, who, to quote the Shirley Bassey song, loves only gold, and his plan is to... Is this still use... a quote from the song? No, no. Oh. That was the song. song. Um, his plan <laughs> is to use nuclear weapons against uh, Fort Knox to create a situation in which she has the greatest uh, amount of gold in the world. So he, he has a corner on all of gold. Francisco Scaramanga is the world's greatest assassin who uses his golden gun and golden bullets to shoot everyone who stands in his way and any target of his. He gets a million dollars a shot, and he's going against Bond. So... Can you, Alex, can you repeat the name of the first one? Arik Goldfinger. Arik as in A-U. Got it, got it, got it, got the, it. The, Yeah, okay. All right. Arik Goldfinger versus Francisco Scaramanga. Um, Alex, we're going to start with you. So, so both of these guys are obsessed with gold. Well, the man with the golden gun, technically not obsessed with gold, but he has a golden gun and uses golden bullets and is one of the world's greatest assassins. Arik Goldfinger is one of the world's richest men, and he has odd job as a henchman, and ultimately has enough money and skill to take out a lot of the world's other greatest adventures. Hmm. Venturers, rather, <clears throat> not adventurers. So some of the world's greatest investors can be taken out by Goldfinger fairly easily. Scaramanga, more of a, an assassin. Goldfinger... More of a mastermind who has the ability to use his money in potentially important ways. Uh, gotcha. Go ahead and tell us what you think, Alex, is more important. I, I just want I just want to like sub in here for a second just to say that Arik is spelled A U, so A-U? for gold. A U R I C. That's Arik. a clever bit of writing yeah. right there. Yeah, they they the screenwriters really uh thought that through. 
Are they cap? Is are, is it both capitalized? Is it capital yeah. A, capital U? Rich? And, and it's, that's not credit you give to the the screenwriters. That goes to Ian Fleming. Oh, that Fleming. Yeah. Oh, nice. I'm gonna give it to screenwriters. I don't care what you say. You can't stop me. <laughs> uh, man. Uh, I is I think an assassin would probably do better because he. You know, he's more focused if he just, like, says, okay, I need to go and assassinate this one dude. I can probably get this little midget to come with me. Um, but... I, I don't think that job was a midget, was he? Isn't he? Isn't he the short guy? I don't know that he was I... terribly tall, but I don't know if I'd call him a midget. Oh, he's he's tiny. He's a tiny guy. Yeah. Isn't he? Wow, we're I really mean... illegal for this podcast. <laughs> See, you're portrayed um... by... Well, let me let me just. Throw okay, this maybe he wasn't a midget. I just thought he was small. Goldfinger is. I mean, he, if he has enough money to have the biggest monopoly on gold after Fort Knox is destroyed, mm-hmm. is there a chance he could buy off Goldfinger? I mean, gold, the man with golden gun. I see. I don't think that's that's where I'm heading with this. Is I think I'm gonna have to go with Goldfinger because as soon as he gets all that gold, the man with the golden gun has no more bullets. I mean, it's kind of screwed. Well, to be fair, I think it's been made fairly clear with the Mount of Golden Guns theme song and with the plot of that movie that Scaramanga can basically be bought for a million dollars a shot. Uh, However, he is more likely to kill Goldfinger were they to do battle. So he can be bought, but he's probably more adept at the murder. So final vote, Alex? Goldfinger. All right, uh, Rachel. Hmm. Um. You know, barring the fact that I really do think that it like basically would come down to the to the plot elements surrounding this, I think that I'm gonna have to go with Goldfinger. Um. If only because I think that Scaramanga is kind of pigeonholed a bit. He's he has a certain a certain set of skills um, that I think that Goldfinger and his money and his mastermindedness can probably overcome. All right. And Chris? I don't want to underestimate the ability of a man with a set of skills to be a trained assassin to overcome somebody as well-connected and as powerful as Goldfinger because that's essentially what James Bond does in all the movies and he's always successful. But, I mean, we've established that uh, the man with the gold, uh, Scaramanga, is that how I say it? Francisco Scaramanga, Francisco yes. Scaramanga. We've, we've established that he can be bought, and I think Goldfinger has the money to buy him off, or at least distract him long enough to have Odd Job, you know, lob his head off with the hat, or <laughs> use a gun like a normal person, I would hope. I don't, you know, I can only hope for so much, but... Um, yeah, I, I would say that Scaramanga's mercenary tendencies are his undoing here. I, I, these two have very are both motivated by greed and wealth, and Goldfinger already has a great deal of wealth, so I think that gives him the advantage in this scenario. Even though in a physical contest, I think Scaramanga takes it. I just think that Goldfinger can. I think he can name his price. I, I think he can give. Scaramanga a price to either buy him off or distract him long enough to get the upper hand in the situation. So it goes to Goldfinger for me. 
All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and, and hand that round to Goldfinger. And for time's sake, we have uh, we had another round I was going to do before we move into the finals. But why don't we go ahead and cut that round, saving its, its obvious winner, in my opinion. And we're going to move on to the final round. So these are your options as we go around once more time, one more time to the ultimate winner in the Bond villain Battle Royale. We have Alec Trevelyan, an MI6 agent looking for revenge. Rosa Klebb, one of the top Spectre agents able to manipulate around James Bond. Raul Silva, an ultimate hacker looking for revengeance against him. Art Goldfinger, who's got all the money and a plan to collect more. Or, who I think one of the ultimate challengers, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, the leader of Spectre and Bond's greatest nemesis. You can pick any of these people. Oh, you can't throw him into the mix at the last minute. He wasn't <laughs> at the last minute. There was another round we were going to go through. Who was he up against, just out of curiosity? He was up against uh, Renard, the Bond villain who could feel the least pain. He has oh. no ability to feel pain. Ultimately, Blofeld versus Renard was our... Uh, one seed versus our last seed. Yep, yep. Blofeld. But because we're, we're running a little bit pinched for time right now, throwing Blofeld into the mix, Bond's ultimate nemesis. However, he could probably be outspent by Goldfinger, outhacked by Silva, probably out uh, knife-booted by Rosa Klebb, and uh, he doesn't have the amount of satellites that Alex Trevelyan has. So... Any of these people might be able to outwit Ernst Stavro Blofeld. We have, for clarification, Alec Trevelyan, Rosa Klebb, Raul Silva, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, and Art Goldfinger. Why don't we start with you, Chris? Uh, so this is just of these five who ultimately takes it? Lightning yeah. round. All, All right. of them are fighting each other before they try to do any other plan against Bond or the world. And are they fighting each other now? In terms of what, Richard? I, well, I'm thinking this; these villains span a number of decades in terms of Five decades. Bond. So yeah, are they, they fighting each other in 2012? Yeah, they have they have all of the abilities and all of the. Uh, Are we to assume that their skills have kept up with contemporary society? Certainly, we're we're to assume that whatever resource they have would continue to be the case in in the modern decade. So, Chris, you are first. You can ask any questions you need uh, to determine who is the best. Otherwise, just take your pick. Okay, uh, how much of Spectre does Blofeld still have behind him? Spectre still has all of Blofeld. It's half. Blofeld still has all of Spectre behind him. It's got to be at least half, or at most half, because if you have Rosa, second command of Spectre, she'd take some of them with her, right? That's yeah, a good point. Okay, if, if, if Blofeld is fighting Spectre... Or is fighting Rosa, you have to assume that, that Rosa as second command has taken some of Spectre's forces. However, Blowfield has chairs that will electrocute and kill you. So if you're a top Spectre member, you're probably going with Blowfield. 
uh, if you're if you're a lower henchman, you might side with Clep. I feel like I would just want to get out of the chair and yeah, leave. Don't sit down. I don't understand. <laughs> Problem solved. I don't you're know. You're fighting a war here. Why are you sitting down anyway? It's silly. Okay, so here here's my reasoning behind this. I'm gonna go through this relatively quickly. Goldfinger is out to begin with because I just don't think that he has the drive that some of the the drive or the depravity that some of the other people who are still left in this contest do. I think Goldfinger is an easy out. The only reason he made it thus far was I think he was paired on well I They're I, all they're all paired against a weaker villain. Yeah. The stronger so villains. I think Goldfinger um loses. Uh almost instantly. I'll take him out of this contest. Um Kleb and Blofeld, I think, tie each other up for a little while because they're the two that would have essentially the most resources to kind of go at it and, like, duke it out for a little bit. So I think they distract each other, um, leaving Silva and Trevelyan to kind of work around the edges and take advantage of whatever openings present themselves. And, again, I'm going to go back to the fact that, like, even though these are people who run big, massive, scary organizations, for years they have been undone by essentially the efforts of one single man. So I don't think the idea of uh, Blofeld has all Spectre behind him, whereas Trevelyan has just a few henchmen and a hacker at his side, really um, work in, in this kind of argument, saying that Blofeld would have a distinct advantage there, even though he is a master strategist. So I'm going to say that... Blofeld wipes out Kleb, so she's done. Because again, as I've said before, she falls apart at the ten yard line. Just she has a lot of great plans at the beginning, but then her finishing touch is really, really dumb. Um, that leaves Trevelyan, Silva, and Blofeld. Um, See, I feel like Silva wants it more because I think what happened to him was far worse than what happened to Trevelyan. Um, but again, he doesn't really have any sort of hatred towards Blofeld. And also, I think Spectre is still op operating off of, uh, at, at the most dial-up, I would say. I do not think that they are networked, so I don't think Silva can hack them. Um. I just want to say that I want to see this movie that you're describing. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I think Silva comes at Blofeld with everything he's got, but eventually Blo Blofeld is able to take him down, but Trevelyan swoops in at the end for the kill. I'm going to give it to Trevelyan. Alright, so we have a Trevelyan and a Silva moving to Alex. You can either break the tie or create a third tie, Alex. Well, in the interest of building suspense, I'm going to talk really slow even though <laughs> my mind's been made up from the first minute we did this entire thing and <laughs> basically it's obvious no one wants goldfinger to win this he's he's out him he's okay. he's chilling in his underwater base having like a martini it's probably stirred he and, he and stromberg and, are having a Really, really well. Yeah, to be clear, Stromberg has the underwater base. Yeah. He took it over. Yeah, he uh, bought it out from under Stromberg. Yeah, exactly. Uh, who, who do you think has more money in this scenario, Goldfinger or Stromberg? 
Goldfinger has lots of gold, but Stromberg might actually have more money. He spent it all on the underwater base. I hate Stromberg. <laughs> Anyone with an underwater base is probably a pretty big prick. Yeah. Well, this game's running quite a long time, but it's going to Silva. He's just oh, you're the best. He, he's so good. All right, so despite the fact that Blofeld got a late entrance into the game, Raul Silva from Skyfall has been held to be the ultimate villain. Jordan, having created this game, how do you weigh on this? How do you think this should have gone? Do you agree with the results, or do you think we're completely off base here? I think you're completely off base to an extent. I don't. I, well, completely off base <clears throat> is not correct. I think that Blofeld could kick anyone's ass, but uh, I think that's also biased because Blofeld has the longest reign as Bond's nemesis. Blofeld is the uh, Moriarty to Bond's homes. So but didn't, it's not... didn't Bond kill him by crashing a remote-controlled helicopter into him? <laughs> yes, but only unofficially. So, <laughs> so in terms of Bond openings, technically Bond has killed Blofeld. But that was that was an unofficial. This is Blofeld. Uh, that doesn't necessarily count. And Blofeld killed through his henchman Bond's wife, the only wife Bond has. Blofeld killed Bond in the quote-unquote "You only live twice" Bond. Uh, and Blofeld is ultimately in charge of a stronger base of villains than anyone else. So I would give the. Uh, the ultimate hand to Blofeld personally, but Raul Silva, the newest Bond villain, actually wins because I don't get a vote. So congratulations, Javier Bardem and Raul Silva. Why don't we move on and for a few minutes before we close down the show, discuss Skyfall, which we've all seen. Uh, So if you have not seen Skyfall, go ahead and turn the podcast off at this point. All right, uh, Alex, what do you think about Skyfall? I made three notes that I'm going to end my... Uh, little quick talk here with but I I thought it was fantastic it's the best Bond movie that I've seen it's a fantastic fantastic movie regardless of if you're a Bond fan or not I feel like I'm kind of live in the space between two worlds where I was disappointed that I wasn't a bigger Bond fan to kind of pick up on a lot more of the like subtle hints and callbacks that I knew were in there that I just didn't get but that was kind of frustrating to me for a bit but I'm a really rare case in that point I think but I I thought it was shot beautifully it got a lot deeper into who what like makes James Bond James Bond uh going back to his home in Scotland was was really exciting I'm very glad that Kincaid survived and I hope he comes back in some way because I love that character um I think that the dynamic they have now between Q and Bond is really fun. Uh, It kind of flips the script on the Pierce Brosnan Q, where the James Bond and Pierce Brosnan movies was the young guy who, you know, was telling the older guy how he's going to do things and whatever, whereas now Q's the young guy trying to convince the older guy to do things uh, the new way. And I think that's a really interesting uh, way to take that uh, relationship, a really interesting place to take it. And, I mean, you'd, 
the action, while it was a bit sparse in terms of uh, comparing it to other Bond movies, I think it had a lot more weight to it. Just everything felt urgent because you really like got a sense of who these characters are and what uh, you cared about them a lot. And I'll say my first one of my first thoughts while they were doing the opening scene running through the Grand Bazaar was that I ran on those rooftops in Assassin's Creed, so I totally knew what those looked like. It was really weird. <laughs> um, and then my last two things that maybe someone wants to spin off of and talk about this if, and kind of entertain me here. How about Sam Mendes for the new Star Wars director? Or how about uh, Q, Ben, ben Wishaw ben as the new Doctor Who? Go. <laughs> Well, before I move to Chris, because I want to hear what he has to think about Skyfall, I will say that I actually was uh, suggesting Matt Smith, the current Doctor Who, as the new Q, so that's an interesting way to take that. Uh, that would have been Chris, good, too. What do, you think, what do you think about Skyfall, and to answer Alex's and I's, I guess, slight disagreement, though not really, what do you think about new Q? So go ahead and run away with it. Uh, I'm going to come down on your side with this, Jordan. I, although I really did enjoy the new Q, and I, I especially like the dynamic that you were describing in your answer there, Alex. I'm glad you touched on that, because that was one of my favorite parts of the movie, was the interaction between these two, the flip of the dynamic, and the growing uh, respect, but, like, continuation of, like, they're, they're still nudging each other the entire way, which is that wonderful James Bond Q dynamic continued for a new generation. But here, nicely parsed out throughout the film as opposed to just like one or two scenes as you would get in past iterations um, so I, I just have a, sep- a couple thoughts I would like to touch on here I wish this was a little more connected but uh, I, I loved that this was such a celebration of Bond of everything that makes Bond Bond and this I, I really think to a degree this was the Bond fans movie uh, whereas some fans I think might not have loved all the touches there or found some things to be a little bit too on the nose. I would say that one of those things that might be a little bit on the line either you loved it or you hated it was the introduction at the end of Money Penny. Um, real quick, how did you guys feel about that moment? Was it was it a cool like callback or was it just sort of a eye roll fan service kind of moment for you? I felt like I, I knew Money Penny was going to be introduced in this movie yeah. just because it had been so long that I figured they're going to bring her back. And I'm glad they give Money Penny the chance to feel like a badass because she be, before she becomes Money Penny. Yeah, because she shot um, Giant James. Because so long, like the previous Money Penny was just just an office drone with a badass past that we didn't get to learn about. So I'm glad we got those few moments where she was like, I'm a field agent who can pull it off, but I'm also just money penny. If I'm not mistaken, uh, sorry, Jordan, but if I'm not mistaken, isn't there kind of a dynamic between Money Penny and James Bond in all the under Bond films where they're kind of going back and forth and they had this little one upsmanship? Like, doesn't this movie kind of give uh, precedence to that and kind of a new light that you can look at that in? Yes, and I and that's why I think I like it so much, because Money Penny and Bond have a very flirtatious relationship. They also have a very, like, Bond is always saying, like, oh, I, this and this and this, Money Penny's not particularly impressed necessarily, but also sort of in love with Bond. Like, the idea of Money Penny as a character is sort of a, 
this is a secretary who wants to get with Bond, but who probably never will. Um, and I but think she that, did. And I think there's a modern twist to it in this idea that Money Penny finally like is is of an equal is is an equal to Bond, you know, uh, in a way that I don't think she has been before. So I liked that yeah. part. I, I did love the reimagining of their relationship, and that they laid the basis for it in this movie, and the idea that. I mean, I almost sort of buy the James Bond money penny relationship as a will they won't they going forward, as opposed to in the past where it's more just like a running gag. Like I, I see it as a more viable relationship that I could see possibly be growing more and exploring further in future movies. Or they can't. Like they, they either they don't have to. Like either way, I think it's fine. I think the groundwork has been nicely established in this movie. I think the. I think the overall that that moment where he he's like, "What's your name?" Sort of, I, maybe not the most fluid introduction of that concept, but I, I, I overall I enjoyed the introduction of the character and the dynamic that was established between her and James. I think um, it was done a bit better than uh, Dick Grayson in Dark Knight Rises. I was just yeah. going to bring that, <laughs> and I feel like it's it's similar, even though the films were shot separately, and neither one obviously had an idea of what the other one was doing. It's a similar introduction, right. I think. Um, uh, so, so the other touches, like like when when you bring out the the when you had the garage door open, you saw the Aston Martin sitting there. Uh, my, the theater I was in, everybody broke out into a round of applause, which I thought was a really cool moment. Yeah, I, I I'm so glad was... mine didn't. I would have been so angry. I would understand <laughs> why they did, but I would be like, "Come on, I'm trying to watch this." It was. I, I thought it was a fun moment. It was just such a like fist pumping fuck yeah moment. For diehard Bond fans, um, and I thought it was just really cool when the entire theater was kind of rough with that. Um, uh, again, as Rachel was saying, I really enjoyed the idea of Bond is human. As much of a Bond fan as I am, my, my least favorite Bond movies I have disliked because of this I- sort of idea of a superhuman Bond thrown into an almost Bond by numbers formula wherein you can predict what's going to happen at what point, and the odds here he's up against are just... They, they would, like, put Superman to the test. My, my go-to example, and probably the most egregious example I can think of off the top of my head, is uh, Die Another Day, where he's driving an invisible car around the Arctic shelf being chased <laughs> by a laser beam made of the sun. Um, so I really like that this is a Bond who ha- is obviously suffering from post-traumatic stress, uh, his is he's physically weak. His uh, he he's been shot in the arm, so he's he's not as strong as he he should be. Um, he's obviously not fit for duty, but he's just driven. Um, and it's it's just a more relatable bond, and especially for this like celebration of all of his bond and this anniversary, the fiftieth anniversary, we finally go back and we delve more into his history than I feel like any movie in the past ever has, and really start to peel back the layers of the persona and get to the man underneath that and really relate to a little while for all that we love about this character and why we love him and just reaffirm that we were right and that this is somebody we're rooting for and he's a really like this is a real he's a more relatable character and i think we're more worried about him after we go back and see his childhood home and we learn more about the trauma that's driving him um so just going through a few more of these really quickly uh, so the next thing I want to touch on is just like uh, I think a big point of this was made 
of the aging of Bond, and especially since John Logan is attached to direct the next two, they, they kind of established that this is Bond to beginning write, his, to be clear. Yeah, to write. Uh, I misspoke. Uh, this is Bond in his twilight years. Um, and he is almost <clears throat> established that this might, this might be the end of his run as a viable secret agent. And it, it will be interesting to see how that's handled going further, because like we have two more Bond movies with Craig, with uh, Logan writing. That well, the ending kind of addressed that. I mean, they just said, hey, I'm ready to keep going, and then they brought the 50th anniversary logo up and said he'll be back. Okay. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, obviously he's going to keep going. Uh, like, yeah, he's going to be back. I, I mean, but I mean, like, that final scene with Daniel Craig in it, he yeah. is in his tux, he's ready to go. Well, and yeah, so was I at I mean, that he, point, too. I could have sat go, through another like, two hours of James Bond. <laughs> okay. All right. So, I mean, it, it's just something that's going to be needed to, needed to be addressed in the next few. Because, like, yeah, obviously his drive is still there. But, again, is his can his body keep up? Which is a big which is a big idea of this movie. Was that, like, how much punishment can you take before you just can't do it anymore? One read I saw of this movie was that, uh, you know, there was Casino Royale, Quantum Solace, and then every other movie that James Bond did and then Skyfall. So he has, like, he looks like he'd been through all of that other stuff before coming on to uh, this one. Which I thought it was a pretty interesting idea. Getting back more to basics, like, Jordan, I think you're the biggest Bond fan out of all of us. Like, how did you feel of it as, like, a Bond movie? That's true, and I want to be quick because obviously this is a very long podcast, though we all love Bond, and I think it's been a great podcast for that reason. Um, as someone who's seen all the Bond movies multiple times, and who will probably see all of them, including Skyfall, many more before the next Bond comes out, I thought Skyfall was a, a fantastic entry into the series. Um... I know a lot of the critics that I have read have said, like, oh, Skyfall is one of the greatest Bond movies of all time. And I think that's right. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't be willing to say Skyfall is the best movie in the Bond franchise. I wouldn't be willing to say... Which one do you think is, is better? I wouldn't be willing to say it's one of my favorite. And I'll say, which ones do I think are better? I think On Her Majesty's Secret Service is my all-time favorite, even though it breaks with the format a bit. I think uh, From Russia With Love is perhaps the quintessential Bond movie. I think Goldfinger says a lot about what Bond became after Goldfinger, and I think even Skyfall owes a debt to Goldfinger um, for the fact of the the over-the-top Bond villain, um, and for, for a lot of what it does in terms of following the series. I think that Skyfall will ultimately be one of the go-to Bond movies in terms of, hey, do you want to become a fan of the Bond franchise? Here's where you start. If you're if you're a modern Bond fan, Skyfall is is one of the go-tos. You know, you see Casino Royale, you see Skyfall, and you're a Bond fan. Um, and I think that puts it among the upper echelon of Bond movies. So, I mean, right now it's definitely I'm, my favorite Bond movie that I've seen. See, it's and easy. I would say I have I have problems with with it in terms of the ultimate Bond canon, because I know so many people are thinking that it is the best Bond movie, or one of the best Bond movies, but as a fan of film in general, I think Skyfall is one of the better accomplishments of the Bond franchise, in terms of, like, 
it was just a great movie that also happened to be a great Bond film. Uh, which is something that I know a lot of Bond fans say, well, Honor Magic Secret Service is a great movie, but not a great Bond movie. So I would disagree with that as a general characterization and say that both are fantastic Bond movies, though I would prefer Honor Magic Secret Service to Skyfall. Can I but, interject something really quickly here? Oh, please, go ahead. Yet? Uh, I, I think we would be doing a disservice not to mention or at least even discuss the idea of this being uh, Judy Dench's send-off from the franchise. It uh, obviously is. M for seven years. Well, I mean, she, she's been M for seven films now. And uh, she's been great at it. It was Absolutely wonderful. And I, I would say that this was almost as much her movie as it was James Bond. Like, it, it was almost... It's, oh, yeah. it's really an M story as yeah. much as it's a Bond story. Absolutely. <laughs> and it, it's a phenomenal M story. Like I, I love the the examinations of her character just right alongside Bond and the weight that she carries from having to make these decisions over the years and all of her sins coming back to haunt her. I I thought it was a phenomenal story and the the understanding that was reached between the two of them towards the end, I, I just loved every minute of it. And I thought it was a spectacular way to celebrate judy dench's achievements in this franchise by ultimately making this an like her final film a very m-centric story i mean if you start breaking it down this movie has so much in it it's like it's the money penny origin story more or less it's a whole uh movie about m and james bond's relationship it's a movie about where james bond came from like there's so much going on in this movie, and each thing feels equally weighted. It's a, an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, well, I think ultimately we're all pretty satisfied with Skyfall. Uh, as a Bond fan, I would put Skyfall in the upper echelon immediately <coughs> after seeing it. And usually I'm the sort of person who says, let's give it a few viewings, let's figure out where it fits in a film canon, and then, you know, ultimately in a Bond canon. But I think we're all satisfied. I'm going to drag this conversation on one more time, kicking and screaming. Where, (laughs) especially, despite the fact this is this is already by far. Oh, it's so long. It's great. People are loving this. And kick and scream really quickly, and then we'll wrap up. Especially this question is especially to you, Jordan. Where, like, I love Silva. I think that was obvious from the last game, but. Where do people think he ranks in terms of Bond villains? How do you think he was played in this movie? I think, like, we'd be doing a disservice to the movie to mention everything else except, like, how great Silva is. And the everyone in my theater was, like, squirming when his he took out his jaw and his face was just melting down. It was so, it was so good. Jordan, what do you think of him in the pantheon of Bond villains? I think, ultimately, Silva is a top-five Bond villain, which is saying a lot. Because they're, like, we're... The Bond franchise is a series full of great villains. And I think Silva is up there with the Blofelds, the Goldfingers, the... Any... The Stromfelds, even. Any no, great Bond Strom villain is you're going there. to mention. <laughs> I, know you, I know you hate, hate Stromfeld. Stromfeld. Any... <laughs> Any villain you're going to mention who has had a great Bond plan and who has had great execution of that plan is ultimately going to be compared to Raul Silva in terms of, wow, like, what... I'll use the word, what panache, what... In terms of sheer acting capability, 
it's amazing what Javier Bardem was able to do, but also just as a threatening villain, as a, as a villain who threatens Bond in a realistic and, and disturbing way, Silva is up there. So I just think Skyfall wins in terms of that, if, if in terms of nothing else, which it has its weaknesses, but it was just a great Bond movie. I liked how Silva played off of the Bond idea that he's such a womanizer that Silva starts, you know, coming on to him, basically, while he's tied to a chair. I thought that was a pretty uh, neat flip that they did. Well, the idea that Bond isn't willing to bang a guy is unrealistic to me. Like, Bond is going to do whatever it takes to get the job done. I don't (laughs) think him banging all the women in the movies is part of him getting, well, his mission done. I don't know about a job done, but... Perks. Well... Perks of the job. (laughs) Most of the Bond girls are not associated with the mission but the idea that like i think I, i've i've had this conversation with some people who say like oh bond is uh you know like that was a shocking moment to have bond go toe-to-toe with a man who's sexually intimidating him and i say like bond's gonna do whatever he has to do to get the job done and i think that the idea of bond as as a heterosexual is obvious the idea of bond as someone who's willing to do Whoever <laughs> I don't think I'm not saying to get the job done as much as whatever. I'm not saying, I'm not makes saying sense. that he would have like fucked Silva and that would have been the end of the mission. Like I'm just saying uh, more that Silva kind of played off of Bond's uh, like sexual dominance, basically, to put him in a position that he's not used to. Oh, that's certainly true, and I think that was great. Uh, so. Any last thoughts? I obviously have many more, and I'm sure we all do, but any last thoughts before we wrap this up? Uh, message us your thoughts on the film. We'd love to hear what you guys thought of it, and if you think we've uh, discussed in depth, or if you'd like to hear more thoughts, or just talk more with us about the film, we'd love to talk about it with you guys who are listening at home. Yeah, we're never, we're never going to be done talking about this, Ever. because we're all big Bond fans, so... If you want to email us at reviewbename at gmail.com or follow us and comment to us on Twitter at reviewbename, feel free. Oh, God. Any other comments before we wrap this up? Uh, no, I think that's about it. I'm sorry, I'm dropping things. <laughs> Chris, no! I'm dropping so many things right now. Uh, yeah, it's me, it's Chris. <laughs> Chris, are you here? I'm still here. Uh, Alex? Uh, I got nothing. I said my P's and Q's. Go see Skyfall. Alright, so why don't we wrap things up by saying everyone sees Skyfall. If you're a Bond fan, it is among the best Bond movies. If you're a fan of It's one of the best movies, movies you'll see all year. Absolutely. It is among the upper echelon, if not the best action movie you'll see this year. So go see Skyfall. Please. Before we wrap up, uh, we always have to do Who Won the Week, uh, the Rachel Tardiff Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week. This week, fairly obvious, we were gonna we were gonna try to complicate things for a moment, but the votes have come in. The votes are obvious. The winner of this week is James Bond. See, I would have given it to Boy Meets World for being the only thing non James Bond related mentioned. You just like the underdogs. Look. I do. Look, my vote was for for Boy Meets World as well, and for Girl Meets World. Yeah, no, not Girl Meets World. I think it's going to be good. voting for Boy Meets World, the show he's never seen. 
Children meeting world in general. <laughs> but I children, children meet world. world. I, I don't control. Show. I don't control the ultimate victor. You know, I uh, I just find who tabulated the vote and announce it. So the you, you went back award into the decision room the and talked to the nerds that crunched the numbers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so it, it takes me like five minutes to walk back there, much like <laughs> Megan Kelly. And when I get back there, they say, "Look, we don't give a shit who you think is going to win." <laughs> James Bond wins, and I say, thanks, nerds, and I come back here, and I report it. Congratulations, James Bond. If James Bond wants to show up and collect his trophy and a small cash prize, obviously we'd be happy to see him, and we would have some things to talk about with him, including the quality of Skyfall's movie, which I think we all think is fantastic. So, with that, this is, without a doubt, our longest podcast of all time, Thanks for listening. Apologies to Daniel, our wonderful tech editor, who's going to edit this. Uh, And we will see you next week with a shorter, more concise, less Bond-focused podcast. So, Uh, bye, everybody! Bye!